morning. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 16 today. If you'll turn to Psalm chapter 16. The Psalms were the hymn book of the faith. They are songs that come from the heart of David and other writers in the book of Psalms. This Psalm was written by David. Again, another one of his hit songs. If it had been on the radio in that day, if they had radio, the title of this Psalm would have been Satisfaction Guaranteed. I know you probably have purchased some kind of item in the last few days where satisfaction was guaranteed. You had 30 days, 60 days, 90 days to evaluate, and if you weren't happy, you could send it back, get your money back. Well, in this psalm, you're going to see that there is an eternal deadline, that you will never regret that satisfaction is guaranteed for all of eternity. As we dig into this psalm, it's a unique psalm. Uh, Bible scholars have had great debates about, is this just David speaking from his life? Or is God using David as a prophet to speak to the life of Jesus Christ? For in this uh, psalm, you can literally see the life of Jesus in the garden, uh, to the crucifixion, and, and then even in his resurrection. And what we find is that God was using David's life to be a prototype to foreshadow what we would see in the life of Christ. We can learn great life lessons here, but we can also see that it was pointing to what Jesus would do for you and for me. I want you, I, I have you in Psalm 16, but hold your place and go to Luke chapter 24. I want to show you something Jesus said as we're going through this series on the book of Psalms, different Psalms out of the hymn book of the faith. And we get to Luke 24, verse 44. Look at what Jesus taught his disciples before he ascended into heaven. Now, this isn't early in his ministry. This is after the crucifixion. This is after he's been buried in a tomb. After they've discovered that the tomb was empty and Jesus has now appeared back to his disciples alive and risen from the dead. Listen to what he said in verse 44. Now Jesus said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things that are written about me, not in the Jerusalem Post, not on social media, but all the things that were written about me where? In the law of Moses and the prophets and the what? Psalms. The Psalms, all of the Word of God points to Jesus. You don't just go into the Old Testament and just read some crazy stories about some crazy days where people are trying to figure out life and who God was. It points, all of it points to Jesus, even the Psalms. He said, all these things that were written about me in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. My prayer for us this morning is that God would open our minds to not only see truth in this psalm, but that we might also see who Jesus is in our story. That God would not just show us words on a page, but we would see Jesus in those words. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer, rise again from the dead in the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And so as we go into Psalm 16, I want you to read through and we'll look in the context of what God taught David. But as we read through what God was teaching David, may it also point us to who Jesus is in our story. So let's take a look. Verse 1, satisfaction guaranteed. Look at verse 1. David prayed and said, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. He begins by crying out for God's protection. Now, now, David, why would he need protection? I mean, he's a giant killer. Why would he need protection? 
He's anointed king of Israel. Why would he need protection? He's got his mighty men. He's got an army. He's got his slingshot. Why would he need protection? Because we all face an enemy way bigger than Goliath, way bigger than a Philistine, way bigger than any enemy David ever, ever encountered on this earth. Our enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And while he literally needed God's physical protection, he also saw that God was the one you take refuge in for your spiritual protection as well. He looked to God to be his deliverer, to be that protection. That word preserve means a proactive protection. It's a guarding that is already put in place by the Lord God himself. He is our shield and our fortress. Now, you can experience a shield, but you've got to place your faith in the shield. You've got to run to that tower, that wall of refuge, the Lord God. You've got to let him be that defender, or you're out there all on your own, and the enemy finds you to be easy prey. David could have hid in a palace. He could have hid behind his armies, but he chose to place his faith, his trust, and find refuge in his God. God is our protection. Verse 2, so I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. You are my Lord. Now, many people, as they would come before David, would declare, my Lord, David, my King, Lord, we need your help. We need your protection. We need your provision. David would declare for all the people and all the land and all the lands, plural, that he had a Lord. He had a boss. He had a king. His name is the Lord God, Jehovah. He was declaring that I too have to submit. I too have a Lord. He's my Lord. He's not the Lord of Israel. He's not the Lord God creator. He's my Lord. So in this particular worship service, it'd be very easy for some of you to say, well, I've always grown up in a Christian home. I know who Jesus is. You've been to Awanas. You've been to camps. You've been to Falls Creek. You've been to services at 1105. You know who Jesus is. He's maybe the God of your parents, but is he your God? He may be the God of your grandparents. He may be the God of whoever, but is he your Lord? David said, he's my Lord. And I cried out to my Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good besides you. In you, I have everything. In you, I'm all, all is good and I'm good. David had to realize he couldn't find good outside of God. He couldn't find good inside of who he was, but he found everything he needed in the Lord. He said, I am satisfied. And then he goes on to make a list. In verse 1, he says, you are my refuge, my defense. You are my goodness, in verse 2. In verses 5 through 6, you're my inheritance. You are my everything. In verse 7, you are my counselor. In verse 8, you are my right hand, my strength. And in verse 9, you are my hope. In verse 11, he says, you are my guide, and, and, and you are the fullness of my joy. And everything that I reflect on, God, you are everything to me. Notice David didn't reflect on his victories. He didn't reflect on his kingdom. He didn't reflect on all the treasury that was under his control. He didn't reflect on all these things that were at his disposal, but he found everything in his God. Today we live in the land of abundance. We are spoiled rotten in the blessings that we have living in a nation like America. And those blessings have actually become our curse because what happens is, what could have easily happened for David? All of this abundance, all this stuff we have in this lifetime can rob us of that perspective of who God is in our life for all of eternity. 
We can try to find our fulfillment and our joy in the stuff of this world and the things that we live for and the things that we get to taste here on earth. And we'll only find great sorrow. In this psalm, this greatest hit, Satisfaction Guaranteed, David puts a list. Every verse is simply another list of who God was and who God had demonstrated himself to be in David's story. So what I want to encourage you to do today, sometime today, not right now, but in a little while, when you break from this place, I want you to find just a a remote spot sometime in the course of this day, and I want you to make a Jesus list. And a Jesus list is just very simple. It's just taking out a sheet of paper, and I want you to reflect on different ways God has revealed himself to you. As he's revealed himself in Scripture, he's declared who he is. Write those things down. As you look back over your story and you can see where God interjected himself in a unique way, revealing his person, put that to the list. Different ones that showed up as I was reflecting on the list. The Lord Jesus, he is my shepherd. It's important to know that. And, and all throughout scripture, he says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. I am the great shepherd. He revealed himself as shepherd. Now, why is that significant? Well, he wanted you to understand that you don't have to worry about where you're going to get your green pastures, where you're going to get your provision, how you're going to be protected from the enemy. He is your shepherd. He's the one who guides you, protects you, and provides for you. I look to him every day as my shepherd. If I didn't know that's who he was, I wouldn't experience that dimension of God in my life. The Lord is my peace. In a world that has no peace, he is the Prince of Peace. He described himself as that. And if I don't understand he is the Lord of peace, then I won't have peace in my story. He's the bread of life. We'll talk about that often in this particular message as we did last Sunday. If I don't see him as the bread of life, I go to other things for my nourishment. I go to other things, the world for my spiritual carbs, if you will, and I end up empty-hearted and empty in my story. If I don't know he's the great physician, how can I call on him for healing? If I don't understand that greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world, then I walk around doubting if I'm going to have victory in that moment or can I make it tomorrow or or will I be successful against the attacks of the enemy. But when I understand that greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world, I have a confidence not in me but in him. So who is God to you? Is he just your creator? Is he just, and I'm not minimizing this, is he just a savior, a ticket to heaven? He chose to reveal himself in so many different ways so that you would understand the intricacies and the intimacy of who God is. So many times we just have a one-dimensional, one-faceted Jesus, some guy that died for my sins, and, and because of that I'll get to go to heaven one day, and we never experience the fullness of who Jesus is in our story. The Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Great Provider, the Great Defender. And when Paul came to understand, uh, understood who, Jesus, who the Lord was of his life, who God, Jehovah, was, he drew a conclusion that, you know what? Everybody thinks I'm a big thing. Everybody thinks I'm the king. Everybody thinks I'm great. They're singing songs about me, and everybody knows who I am. But then he declared publicly, and this is amazing for a politician to say, guys, know this. Apart from God, there's nothing good in me exactly what Paul would write in Romans chapter 7. You've heard me read it before, but verses 18 through 19 says, Paul speaking, 
The same thing David would sing about. I know that nothing good dwells in me, my flesh. There is nothing inherently good in me. So why do we try to use that as our reason into heaven? Why do we let that be our belief that if my good outweighs my bad, there's nothing good in us, our flesh. But Paul was able to go on to talk about something that was good in him. He would go on in chapter 8 to say, but listen, know this, the Spirit of God lives in me. That's what makes me good. That's what's good in me. That's what's good about my story is I'm a new person in Christ, and that Christ lives in me. Back to Psalm 16, verse 3. He goes on to say, and as for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. He starts talking about two different people, those who are saints and those who are not. Now, a saint is a little different than what maybe you perceive. When we think of saints, we think either of uh, a, particular a particular religion on the planet that has sainthoods and saint this and saint that. Others think of a saint as somebody who's perfect, like everybody else in the room but me. That's not what a saint was simply someone who now was a part of the king's family. And that's who we are in Christ. We are not perfect. He is. But we live in his family, and he is perfecting us, and we then are called the saints of God. And we have become saints because we have him as our God, as our king. But in verse 5, take a look at verse 5. There are others who say, I need no king. I don't need anybody ruling over my life. I'll be the boss of my life. I'll live life how I want to. I'll do things the way I want to do them, and I'm going to pursue everything but God. Look at the result. Verse 4. The sorrows of those who've bartered for another God. David said, he can either be the Lord of your life or you can let other stuff lord your life. You can either have God or you can barter for the gods of this world. Now we're going to dig through different words in this uh, particular verse. The first word I want you to see is sorrows. He says, when you choose not to live under the lordship of God, the one who created you and designed you, when you live outside of that lordship, you will find sorrows. That word sorrow literally means deep, piercing wound. It's not like it's just a little bit of a whack. It's not like it's just a tough day. No, when you live outside the lordship of God, you can pursue everything the world throws at you, and it can look good, it can sound good, taste good. But as we said last Sunday, it will burn you every single time. And it isn't just a surface wound, it is a deep, piercing wound. In the heart of every person that was ever created by God, there was a God-shaped void. They can only be filled by the Lordship of Christ, but we try to fill it with everything else. And when we pack that into our lives, we find that we just have emptiness and purposelessness. And as a result, there is deep, piercing soul wounds in our heart. Today, if you have that kind of deep wound, if there's an emptiness in your life, I want you to understand it's not because you need a better job. It's not because you need this or that. It's a God-shaped void. They can only be filled with God. In verse 4, David said, those who don't know the Lord, they have bartered for another God. That word bartered is an interesting word. That word bartered actually means dowry, the same word that was a dowry. Now, I don't know when humans mess this whole thing up, but it used to be a really sweet deal. A dowry was a, a price that a gentleman would pay to the father of daughters. 
I have three daughters. What happened to the dowry? Our culture has it all messed up, man. It is wacko. Now the man of the daughters pays for the wedding. Help me, Rhonda, go back to the Old Testament when it comes to having daughters. A gentleman would approach the father and he would bring, and depending on what he put down, depending on which daughter he got. I'm not going to get into that grading system. I'm not going to get into all the practices and details. But man, they would lay down and say, I desire your daughter so much, I'm willing to pay this great price. David says, there are some who don't understand the price of what God has paid that we might have a relationship with him. And instead, they pay a higher price. They barter. They, they, they bring this deposit. They pay a price they didn't realize they were going to be paying to get what they thought they were going to get that wasn't what they intended to get. Because who's going to pay for sorrows? Who's going to put some money down and says, man, I want my life to be miserable? But when I started going to the parties with my friends... When I started doing what all the guys in my class were doing and when I was trying to be cool like everybody else, I didn't realize years later that was going to be a huge rope around my neck and a potential life addiction and the sorrows it would bring to my family from my generation through my parents' generation back to their parents' generation and probably before that. A price being paid for something we never thought we would get. And look at what he says. They will have multiplied sorrows. The word he uses for multiplied here means abundant. It doesn't just mean a pile of sorrows. It means ongoing, abundant, beyond measure, beyond you could even imagine sorrow. Who signs up for that? Never met anybody that said, you know what? I think I'm willing to invest my life in the bottle man and can't wait to become an addict. And yet millions of people do. I can't think of anybody who would say, you know what, man, I want to be sexually active with my, my dating person who I'm dating and, 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 and hoping that I turn up pregnant before we get married and even probably experience an abortion. Never seen anybody sign up for that. And yet millions... Of babies have been aborted through the years. Many, millions of lives have been impacted. I've never heard of anybody who found great joy in the devastating effects of simple choices. That's not throwing stones. That's just David being real. He said, you can experience the lordship of God and all the blessings in abundance, or you can go and you can barter your way, you can pay a price, and you will pay the price. And what's the price? multiplied sorrows for there is a way that seems right to a person it looks right everybody says it's right legislators say it's right and yet we have multiplied sorrows well how can you have true satisfaction how can you miss out on multiplied sorrows and actually find satisfaction guaranteed well david listed let me show you just a few things very quickly Go to verse 5. The first thing he points to in verse 5 is this. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. Now, there are two explanations for this word portion here. But basically, what David is saying is, I am content in my God and my relationship with him more than anything else on the planet. 
Now, two portions this could be speaking of when it especially mentions a cup. It could be speaking of food and nourishment. It also could be speaking of a portion like was delegated out to the 12 tribes of Israel, actual pieces of their inheritance, real estate, the boundaries of the land that would become theirs, their possession. Regardless of what it means, what we know is this. David said, listen, it doesn't matter if I'm king of all of Israel. It doesn't matter if I'm sitting on a throne or I'm not sitting on the throne as king of Israel. It doesn't matter if I have great victories at war or if I'm being attacked by a great enemy. The Lord is my portion. When Israel came in to settle the land, uh, it was divided up among them, the promised land, all except for Aaron and the Levites. And God said, for this tribe, they get this boundary. For this tribe, they get this boundary. For this tribe, they get this boundary. But for Aaron and the Levites, no territory. What? Are you kidding me? No, you're going to be a priest to my people. And what he said to Aaron and the Levites is this. Listen in. I will be your inheritance. I will be your portion. Yeah, but my cousins... They've got something tangible. They've got some real estate. God says, I've got so much more. Do you need what the world gives you, or are you willing to be content in him? The Apostle Paul had to learn this lesson. The Apostle Paul, who used to be Saul, as we've talked about before, Saul of Tarsus, he had everything the world could give him. He had power. He had fame. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. Everybody in town knew who he was. He was the power player of his day. But he had the God-shaped void. He had unending sorrows. Oh, he had a religion. He had a great job. He had serious coins, but he had no peace with God. On the road to Damascus, he would meet the Lord Jesus, and God would teach him what he taught David. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Listen to what Paul said. He said, not that I speak from want. There he is. Man, I don't, I don't want anything anymore. I don't want more power. I don't want more coins. I don't want more this. I'm not wanting anymore. I found the Lord. The Lord is my portion is what he's saying. And listen to what he goes on to say. For I have learned to be content. There is an unholy discontent among the body of Christ today. Uh, we want Jesus to save us and take us to heaven, but we don't want him to be our portion. We want Jesus to be a Sunday morning Jesus, a savior of our sins, but the rest of the week we want more of this world. He says, I've learned to be content. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned a secret. The secret of being filled, but also days when I go hungry. Of having great abundance, but also suffering great needs. He said, no matter what my circumstances are, the Lord is my portion. Satisfaction guaranteed. Go back to Psalm 16, verse 6. He goes on. He says, for the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me, and indeed my mind instructs me in the middle of the night. The second key for having satisfaction in life is that you seek the counsel of God. You'd expect a preacher to say that, but this is David saying it. This is the king who everybody came and would come before his throne asking for David's counsel. 
What do we do about this, king? King, we need you to rule over this dispute. We need you to rule over this legislation. We need you to make a decision. We need your counsel. And David would come before his people, and David would say to them, I want you to understand, I seek the counsel of Almighty God. He is my counselor, and I seek counsel in his word and through his person. David, a man after God's own heart, was a man after God's counsel. Where are you getting your counsel? Where are you getting your truth? Are you going to look to your peers? Are you going to look to this culture? Are you going to look to the media that wants to paint us down a certain path? Or can we return to letting God be our counselor? David would sing throughout all of his songs about the counsel of God and his word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners or sits in the seat of scornful, but his delight is in God's word, the law of the Lord. In his word he meditates day and night. Another psalm he writes, the law of the Lord, the word of God, is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts and the truths of God's word are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. Satisfaction guaranteed. When you have the manual of life, when you have the blueprint to success and joy, you experience life and satisfaction. Go on to verse 8. One more, couple more keys and we'll be done. Look at this next one. This is powerful. Not only do I seek the counsel of God, but I daily walk with him. I've set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. David says, as I'm living my life, I set the Lord continually before me. That means daily and all throughout the day. Not just one day a week, one hour a week on Sunday mornings, but daily. Daily I set the Lord before me. I place myself in the presence of the king. Every day when he would wake up, he would sit on his throne governing his kingdom and people would come from his kingdom and would seek the king's help and he would see that day after day after day and it dawned on him you know the same has to be true in my life daily i i go to the lord i continually put him before me now here's the clever tactic of the enemy place everything else in front of people place place their pleasures in front of them keep them busy Place in front of them their problems. Let me tell you this. What you place before you determines your satisfaction. If you put your problems before you every day, you will be, as it says here in verse 8, you will be shaken. Put media in front of you and the messages that are coming at you every single day and let that be your focus. You will be shaken. Put your pleasures before you. Think on those things that look good, sound good, and everybody else is doing, and you will be shaken. Put a bowl of ice cream in front of you and everything changes. That's a different story. I'm not talking ice cream. But anything else other than God, you put it before you, you will be shaken. Or put the Lord before you and you will be satisfied. See, that's part of the problem is we come to the cross because somebody preached Jesus and put Jesus in our face. And we come to understand we can't save ourselves and God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and we get Jesus put into our face, and that's as far as we go with Jesus. 
And then we start putting everything else in front of us and we wonder why we're not satisfied even though we know the Lord. Because we're not putting him before us continually. Yesterday was a long, long day. We took our baby, we emptied the nest yesterday, took our baby to an undisclosed location in an undisclosed city. (laughs) And we dropped her off at a place where she is now residing outside our nest. To make that transition a little easier, she's always had a Siberian Husky in her life, and the one she has now is coming to a slow end, and so we found another Husky for her to take to school with her. His name is Balto. Yeah, after the movie, Balto. This is a picture. You can't see it real good. I wish you could. That's Balto there on the left, hanging out on Haven's bed. That you can't see. Haven's in that picture on the very right. Our, our, our projector's terrible. This dog is awesome. This dog is clever. This dog is bizarre, but he loves Haven. Immediately, they became best friends. He doesn't pay attention to anybody else but Haven. With this dog, we should have, we should have been clued in a little bit, came the most professional kennel I've ever seen in my entire life. I thought Houdini can't get out of that cage. And whenever somebody is gone, Balto has been trained to be in his kennel so that everything goes well. And this thing is built out of serious metal. It takes two people to lift it and to carry it into the apartment. It is huge, and and actually, it's decked out way better than her apartment. His bedding is way better than the bed she's paying money for every single month. She thought about sleeping in the kennel because it was so good. And no matter how good that place is, no matter how comfortable that kennel is, what we've discovered is if Balto can't be with Haven, he ain't happy. And we discovered this while we made the unfortunate decision to go to Walmart on move-in day in this undisclosed city. Oh, yeah. I'm still, I had to confess five different times to the Lord the issues of my heart, the experience of that moment, and the misery of Walmart on move-in day at a college university town. It was terrible. People who didn't even need stuff were there buying stuff just to frustrate me. And while we were there in the middle of what seemed like a 10-hour journey, we got a photo update from Haven's roommate. A tornado apparently moved in. We weren't even watching the weather patterns. And a tornado landed inside, only inside the middle of her room in this apartment. We traced it back to Balto. Balto, who'd been left in this fortified crate, kennel, metal top to bottom, two latches on the front, one at top, one at bottom, so a dog can't get out, was hacked by this Houdini named Balto. We came home, and it it was terrible. Her room was a disaster. Stuff is all shredded and all torn up, and we come in, and so I got to fix it. I go to Lowe's. I buy stuff to fix the doors, keep it shut. While I'm in the room, while I've put this uh, carabine-type latch system together to keep it where he can't get out, the dog pushes the lashes open with his nose, busts through my solution, and is right out again with Haven. No, don't clap for the devil. Don't ever clap for the devil. I'm not going to let this dog win. Three trips later to Lowe's. I beat the dog, not with my hand, I I won. I didn't beat him, but I beat him. Boy's locked in. 
As I, as I went home, and Haven sent me these two pictures showing me all was well after I was gone, I remember, I remember just kind of reflecting on how bad Balto, and as soon as he gets out, you know where he goes? He doesn't go to a dog dish. He goes running for Haven. He can't stand to be away from her. She always has to be before him, or he panics. He goes nuts. As I was reflecting on my sermon and reflecting on that day and confessing my sin to the Lord, I, I remember the reality of that dog wants to be with Haven more than I want to be with my Lord. God, forgive me. God, forgive me that a dog which is man's best friend, that it can be said about that dog, but can it be said about me that I'm God's best friend? Do I hunger and desire his presence like Balto desires Haven? And I had to confess my sin. And I had to say to the Lord, Lord, I don't desire you in that way, but God, I want to change my heart. And God, may I be your best friend. Where are you today? Is the Lord continually before you? Or have you placed the Lord over here on a convenient little shelf? Do you have the Lord just in your heart for salvation, but he's not in your story every single day? Then return to the Lord. Hunger for his presence. Appear before his throne daily with boldness and confidence. And in the end, look at verse 9. Therefore, he said, now my heart is glad. My glory rejoices. My flesh dwells securely. Because the Lord was before him. Not his kingdom, the king of kings. Not his palace, but the throne room of God. Not his pleasures and his treasury, but all that God had for him. David said, I rejoice in the Lord. My heart is glad. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Again, this is what Jesus would even pray later on. The same security that he had, knowing that when he died for your sins, it wasn't just to die and be thrust in a grave. That he would resurrect from the dead. That he would not undergo decay, but he would have victory through the resurrection. David, not understanding all that, still had the same security. Knowing God is the God of my life and God is the God of my eternity. And I will live this life with eternity in mind. Placing the Lord continually before me. Seeking his face, seeking his person, seeking his provision. For God, you will make known to me the path of life. And in your presence is fullness of joy. You put the other stuff in front of you. You put that other stuff in your life, you will have multiplied sorrows. I spend way too much time in my ministry having to help people dig out of their sorrows rather than rejoicing with people who are putting the Lord in front of them. Don't fall for the lies. Don't fall for the lies that says uh, the, the good life is the party life. That the gusto is found where everybody else is, not where God is. David said, no, I found the life in God, the one who gave me life, designed life, and gives me the joy of my salvation. Do you know that, Jesus? Is he before you daily? Is he the Lord of your life? Let's pray about it. With every head bowed and every eye closed, the Lord Jesus, the Lord of life. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. You can either have abundant life in Christ or you can have abundant sorrows in the world. You get to pick. You choose. The one who created life, the one who designed it, the one who understands all of it, or are you going to do it on your own?
It's your choice. I had to make a choice as a junior in high school. I could continue to keep wallowing in the sorrows of my sin, or I could turn to a Savior. I could keep playing games with God, or I could get real with Him. And one late Friday night, a great crusade, in front of my classmates, I humbled myself and said, I need a Savior. I need Jesus. I placed my faith in Him. And I've never been disappointed. Satisfaction guaranteed. Has there been a time in your life where you've made that life-changing decision? You've said, Lord, I'm a sinner. There's nothing good in me. I'm not counting on anything I've done or can do to get me to heaven. But, Lord, I look to you, the one holy Savior of the world. God, save me. The Bible says when you call on his name, you will be saved. If that's you, right where you are, you can say, God, I need you. God, there's nothing good in me, but, God, I want you to live in me. I need you to save me from my sin, and he will. That could be online. You could email us at ministry at pcbc.tv. We're here in a moment. Our ministers will be at the front. You can come to one of them and say, I prayed with the pastor today, or I prayed in past weeks. I need to take that first step of giving God glory publicly. Maybe that you need to take the second step. You need to be baptized, not to be saved, but because you have been saved, you need to take the first step of obedience. You come. Maybe you need a church family. We, we would encourage you to come and join the church. If you need somebody to pray with you or pray over you, you can come for that reason as well. Maybe you want to pray for someone else in your life and you're praying for your one that needs Jesus. You can pray at this altar, whatever you need to do. I want to pray for us and we'll stand. Alex will sing. If you need to come, you come. Father God, in Jesus' name, rain down your power, your forgiveness, your grace. God, fill this place with obedience and with changed lives as we surrender to what you've shown us today. Teach us what your psalm is saying, Lord, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.